Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Uh, we all know what's going on. Strange weather, mass extinction of species, melting ice caps, the prospect of a, a critical increase in average global temperatures from which there will be no going back. You don't meet, need me, I don't think, to tell you all that. In terms of the politics of all this, Something very interesting has happened, I would say, in the last six months. If we'd have gathered here two or three years ago and talked about climate change and ecosystems and the environment and all of that, I think people would have felt very strongly about it and we'd have had a very good discussion. But we would have had the sense, really, that mainstream organised politics and, for that matter, most of the media were not terribly interested. It was a subject, for all its urgency, lacking... Uh, from public discourse, which felt very, very odd. Now, that has all changed. And I think one of the key reasons that cha that's changed is nothing to do with politicians or people who present TV programmes or, dare I say it, write newspaper columns. It's because people had enough and grew correctly impatient and decided that they were going to try and push for change themselves. That's something they've been doing for decades, but we've had a huge dose of it since the start of this year. And I don't think the subject of climate change would have returned in the way that it has to public debate had it not been for the school strikes, personified in the figure of Greta Thunberg, and also the Extinction Rebellion, who I see have a tent here where there was a disco last night. I don't know how you save the world by having a disco, but uh, it was very, very full. Um, <laughs> so... That really is going to define what we talk about in the next 45 minutes or so. We're going to be talking about what you, what we can do in terms of changing the way that we live, changing our everyday lives, but also in terms of taking action ourselves to either incrementally make the world a better place and lead by example or put pressure on centers of power to massively, massively up their game. Um, we're going to hear from our two panellists and then, in the spirit of these events at Wilderness, rather than asking questions and all the rest of it, I would like, or we would like, to hear from you about ideas that you have in both of those areas. What have you done? What can you do? What ideas have you got in terms of changing the way that people live, protest, political action, etc., that might be of use in this huge struggle against what often appear to be impossible circumstances? I will now introduce the two people who are going to be leading the discussion. Rosie Rogers is someone I know very well. Rosie is team leader of the climate emergency team at Greenpeace. And you may not have seen her directly, but if you go onto YouTube and you see any footage of that occasion when Greenpeace people disrupted, was it the Mansion House speech? Uh, and that awful man, I, think I can say that safely, Mark Field, put one of them up on the wall by their throat. She was one of those people. She was also one of those people dressed in red who tried to stop Boris Johnson's recent progress through central London. Uh, if you need to know about climate change activism and how to do it, Rosie is a very good person to talk to. That's Rosie Rogers, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're also joined by Isabella Tree. Isabella is a travel writer and is the author of a very important book called Wilding, Rewild, Wilding sorry, which tells the story of the rewilding, a word she will doubtless explain in a moment. Most of you probably know what it means. The rewilding project she embarked on on the Nep estate in West Sussex, fighting back against the effects of intensive farming and land degradation. A massive and often overlooked part of the environmental crisis in which we're faced. That's Isabella Tree. So Rosie, first of all, tell us all about it. What you do, why it's important, and the lessons people maybe can draw in terms of the politics of activism and protest and how to make change. Uh, it's on? Great. Um, yeah, so hi, I'm Rosie. Uh, thanks for being here. It's great. Looking forward to a nice conversation. Um, so yeah, I work for Greenpeace. Uh, I've worked for Greenpeace for about five years, but I've been involved in various kind of uh, activist movements and um, causes for all my life, uh, kind of started out um, in the disability rights scene. My brother has severe autism, so I'm kind of really passionate about, um, about that issue. 
And I kind of got involved in uh, climate activism a while ago. And I think for me, it's all about making change, right? A lot of us hopefully here care about social justice, care about change. And if we think of social change as a kind of toolbox, there's loads of different tools in that toolbox. You might have um, peaceful protests, you might have you know, trade union strikes, you might have hunger strikes, you might have blockades, you might have stunts. There's all sorts of different ways that change happens. And if you look back at kind of civil disobedience, which is literally um, the act of refusal of the laws or the kind of system or the things being put forced on you, there's an amazing history of real wins uh, in, social, in the fight for social equality, social justice, when you look at you know, um, the suffragette movement, the civil rights, apartheid. There's all these different tools in the toolbox, let's say, to make change happen. There's political lobbying, there's um, doing stuff in your community, there's all sorts of things. But the thing that I'm really passionate about is nonviolent direct action. And that essentially is when you put your body in the way of doing something bad. So, um, as John said, kind of, uh, yeah, had, uh, had a bit of a time at the Mansion House speech, to say the least. I've still got scratch marks on my back from the security. They're extremely, extremely violent. Um, and that's nothing compared to, you know, the violence that people who stand up for their civil liberties or the planet experience all over the world. You know, people have died um, for this cause. So not to make light of that, but it was, yeah, quite an aggressive evening. Um, but I've, yeah, done lots of different things. So, for example, um, when we look at nonviolent direct action, again, as this kind of tactic for trying to make change, I guess the question is, is what, what does it actually achieve? And that's kind of something that I'm really passionate about exploring and would love to hear your ideas. Because, for example, uh, last month, or was like four weeks ago, I went up to Inverness in Scotland with um, a bunch of Greenpeace people. And we literally got on board an oil rig and stopped it from leaving the port in Inverness. And it was going out to drill for 30 million barrels of oil. Um, that oil, obviously, we can't take out of the ground. And we, in the middle of the night, in some kind of small inflatable ribs, little boats, we went out and we literally boarded this oil rig and climbed it and occupied it for 12 days. And it was pretty amazing, right? We stopped oil from literally, go you know, an oil rig from going out, it's a BP oil rig, drilling into the ground and taking oil out of the ground. And that is nonviolent direct action, stopping something bad from happening, essentially. But I'm probably guessing none of you heard of that. Yeah. So, you know, it was quite a big thing. Like we, you know, we risked, we risked quite a lot to do that action, but it didn't break through in the media. It didn't break through in conversations in the pub. And I guess that's something that I, you know, would love to hear your thoughts and something that I'm constantly thinking about of when we do these things, these brave things, and when people do these amazing things all over the world, why isn't it piercing through the general consciousness of people? On the other side, you have the Mark Field action, let's say. So we, yeah, we went to the Mansion House and we wanted to deliver the alternative Mansion House speech. The Mansion House speech is when the treasurer, who at the time, Philip Hammond, gives a speech about how great the economy's doing, how great all the bankers and the oil execs in the room are doing, and they all have a lavish meal at the expense of the taxpayers, and they pat each other on the back and they have a lovely time. And we wanted to disrupt that and deliver the speech that he should have been delivering. Uh, we had kind of plan A, B, C, and D, and plan A was going to be really great, but sadly we had to do like plan P for various reasons, um, and it was quite scrappy, and you know we didn't didn't intend for it to. Whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. So what was plan A? Uh, plan A was that so they have the big room. It's kind of like a, a wedding. They have like the top table, and then they have all the long kind of banqueting esque tables going down. And plan A is that we were going to come through a certain door and go directly behind the Chancellor as he was delivering his speech at nine o'clock live on the news and then physically stop him from delivering the speech. We had megaphones, we had an amp, and we had a speech that we wanted to deliver. So plan A was to literally, on live telly, deliver the speech he should have been delivering. Sadly, for various reasons, that didn't happen and we had to go through a different door. So it ended up, as it did, being a bit scrappy and, you know, the violence from Mark Field, which did, in the end, go viral, basically. Had it not been for the... It was an awful thing here, which applies to whole swathes of protest. If you don't get roughed up, right, then it doesn't make the news. This is it. And, like, you know, and I'm looking at these things, like, we... And so we had, for example, we shut down... So in a month... Uh, in the month of 
May and June, in five weeks, we did four actions, right? We shut down BP, um, their headquarters in London, the night before their AGM, and we blockaded it for two days. We then did the oil rig action, and we stopped an oil rig from drilling for 12 days. We then did the mansion house action, where we tried to deliver this alternative speech. We then tried to block Boris from getting to number 10 with a human chain. Out of those four things, it's quite interesting that probably no one has really heard of two of those things, which I would say had possibly more actual direct impact on those companies. So it's a real question of how do you, when we're doing these things, how do you actually have impact and how do you cut through the media? Okay, so last question before I go to Isabella. If you can answer this briskly, what's the cr what are the criteria of success? What's a successful action or protest? Great question. I mean, it, it depends what the objective is, right? If it's to disrupt something and get media and kind of have a polarizing moment where people are talking about it at the pub saying, oh, did you see that? And like, oh, I don't agree with that or I do, then maybe it's getting media. For me, it's about actual change. So it's about, you know, doing something until, like we wanted to stay on that oil rig until BP said, okay, we're not gonna drill for any more oil. Obviously that wasn't gonna happen, but that for me is the measure of success. If you get actual policy changes, if you can see a kind of narrative shift in the media or down the pub. But again, it's very hard to quantify if it's not a kind of tangible policy. But by that token, in their way, the Extinction Rebellion and school strikes, school strikes have been successful. Absolutely. I mean, you know, God, like, I'm just, I'm so grateful for Greta, for the school strikers, uh, for everyone. Um, you know, I was a part of the rebellion as well. Uh, we, at Greenpeace, we support the school strikers behind the scene. And that, although they haven't, let's say, actually achieved any tangible policies, they've achieved more than you know, I'd say what the environment movement has been trying to do for a very, very long time, and I'm completely in awe of them. Okay. Because they have changed the public discussion, they have started a public discussion where it wasn't before. They've opened up space. Right. I think they've opened up space, and, you know, it does help that, like, during the rebellion, it was sunny. Uh, it, the, the police didn't really know what to do. The politicians were on recess. The media were a bit bored. You know, it looked and it felt great. It was a great atmosphere. So I think they've opened up this space that is desperately needed. Just out of curiosity, how many people in here have either participated, have participated in either an Extinction Rebellion protest or a school strike? Okay, not bad. Need a few more. Not bad, but not many. <laughs> right. Isabella, can I ask you a rude question? A terribly rude question to start with that you must have been asked right. before. Is your surname a coincidence? It is my surname. I finally found a book that actually fits the name. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Someone suggested before that sometimes surnames guide your life. Do you think being called Isabella Tree well, sort of made you necessarily more sympathetic with you? I'm not making it sound rude here, but maybe you can see what a, I mean. Maybe it's a nice kind of, you know, maybe in subliminally somewhere, yeah, maybe. <laughs> tell me about tell me about rewilding. How you do it, and and I, I assume you do it partly because it's a means of leading by example. No, we, I don't think so. That's not how we intended how it, it started off with us. I mean, we are a very kind of small story that I think has got much much bigger implications than we ever could have imagined. We we certainly didn't set out to to be. Um, a, a kind of uh, a guiding light for for anything. We did it purely out of economic for economic reasons. Actually, we we inherited my husband and I a farm from his grandparents in about the 1980s, late 1980s, three and a half thousand acres just in West Sussex, south of London. And when we inherited it, it was already a failing farm. So it was intensively farmed for arable and dairy, and it had been uh, dug up pretty much every single available inch of land had been ploughed since the Dig for Victory campaign in the Second World War. And we just assumed that we would carry on. This was a kind of farming family, farming neighbours. Um, and we assumed that the farm was failing because Charlie's grandparents hadn't invested in infrastructure and we you know, knew more about the latest technology. Charlie had trained at Sirencester and knew, you know, felt he knew it. Child of the Green Revolution. And so that's what we did for 17 years. We just intensified even more. We did what every good farmer is supposed to do. We bought bigger machinery. We invested in um, different varieties of crops. We amalgamated dairies. We um, built infrastructure. We did everything we could possibly do. We um, diversified it into ice cream and um, uh, yogurt, and we even milked sheep. 
Um, and, of course, poured more and more chemicals on the land in an effort to get our arable yields higher. So more fertiliser, more pesticides, more herbicides, more fungicides. And we weren't bad farmers. We got our yields up, and we were, had three of the uh, top ten dairy cows in the herds in the country consistently. But after 17 years, we were still losing hand over fist, and we were facing a, an overdraft of one and a half million, and we realised we couldn't go on. We were just on the wrong soil for modern agriculture. Very, very heavy clay soil, 320 metres of it over a bedrock of limestone. It's ghastly, ghastly stuff, and it does not work for modern farming. It's important to point out as well, though, isn't it, that if land is farmed as intensively as agriculture farms it, the biome of the soil and all that just gets knackered. Absolutely, and and even quicker if you're on some on on, on poor soil like ours, you get compaction very very quickly, and um, you know your your problems start intensifying very quickly. Okay, so what did you do? So 17 years on, we realised we had to make a big decision to change, and uh, Charlie, my husband, made I think it was a very brave decision considering the opposition, kind of the cultural opposition, really, to stop farming and to try and do something with our land that was going to work with it rather than battling against it all the time. Uh, we were interested in nature in a kind of amateurish kind of way. I'd been a travel writer and travelled the you know, furthest reaches of the world to look at wildlife. Never once assumed that we should be having it in our own backyard. But then this opportunity came up to us. We, we met this amazing Dutch ecologist called Franz Vera, who was really... Um, reshaping the whole way we think about nature and conservation and landscape management. He was saying that in all our imaginings of how temperate zone Europe would have looked before human impact, we've forgotten about all the free-roaming herbivores, all the, the aurochs, the tarpan, the bison, the elk, the beavers, the wild boar, all these animals that would have been here by the millions. And they would have had a much more open landscape, much more biodiverse, much more interesting much more dynamic. I, I, so I'm going to have to hurry you slightly in the sense that I want to open this up. Yeah. But tell me what the, how much land are we talking about three, and what it looks like and more to the point, what it is in terms of the ecosystems at present. Yeah, so what have the, you got the, now? The key thing is these, is these free-roaming animals. So it's 3,500 acres. We have released small numbers of the free-roaming animals onto this area and they drive the habitat. So the key thing... Um, is with what is now called rewilding, is you just take your... As human beings, you have to take your hands off the steering wheel. And that's very, very difficult to do. Which animals you, did you, have you, you introduced? So we have Old English Longhorn that are standing in for the aurochs, for the original ox. Are they we wild have, cattle? Uh, well, they are de-domesticated cattle, so they're living a wild existence now, yes. Yeah, so we don't supplementary feed anything, we don't touch them, they have no buildings to shelter in. They are... Um, pretty much living in natural herds. And then we have Exmoor ponies being tarpan. Uh, we have Tamworth pigs being wild boar. And we have three different types of deer, fallow, red and roe. And uh, we have just applied for our licence um, to release beaver. We're waiting with bated breath to see if we're going to be allowed to do that. Um, and these, these drive the system. So what has happened in an incredibly short space of time is that we have now some that the habitats that they've created have attracted some of Britain's rarest species. We've now got turtle doves, which are about to go extinct from our shores. We're the only place that turtle dove numbers are actually rising. We've got nightingales. We've got all five UK species of owls. We've got 13 out of the UK, 18 species of bats. And the biomass of life has just completely rocketed. We're surround sound birdsong now. And our soils are restored. So this is one of the key things that we unintentionally have understood that you can kickstart a process where your soils can restore yeah. and you can actually sink carbon into the soil. Ah, I was going to ask you, so tell me the climate change angle yeah. here, right? And there so it that, is. So that's what it is. The species you haven't mentioned is human beings. How do you live? You write books about it. What, what do you know what I mean? No, how does, so, how so, does it work economically for you? Yeah, so now, I mean, you know, having made no money at all um, and losses when we were farming, we now have three income streams. We sell the meat, so we keep the animal um, numbers very, very low, um, and we sell um, 70 tons per year of, you know, uh, self-medicating, organic, pasture-fed, I think the most ethical meat, if you're going to be eating meat, um, that's helping to drive this conservation system. 
Then we have all the old agricultural buildings that would have cost an arm and a leg as farmers for us to keep the roof on. And we're now slowly, with capital output, developing them into storage space, light industrial use. Those buildings, they're not directly employed by us, but the companies renting those buildings from us now employ 200 people. So that's 200 people back in the rural economy around on the estate. And then finally, um, we um, have an ecotourism business because we now have so many people wanting to come and see wildlife. Amazing, inspiring story. Isabella Tree, ladies and gentlemen. That... That was quite an experience for me because I know the word rewilding and I've read George Monbiot articles about it, but I've never heard it talked about as vividly as that. And although I know you were slightly hesitant about the sense of leading by example, you kind of are, aren't you? Well, we, I mean, we had no uh, anticipation of this, but it is amazing. And I mean, we have so many people now coming to see us and what we've done and how we've done it, not just NGOs and conservationists, but we had people who, you know, if you totted up all the acreage last year, there were a million acres that came to look at doing something like this on their land. So that proves the point. Right. How are we, I haven't got a clock up here. How are we doing for time? Can somebody shout how long we've got left? Half an hour. Right, good. So we will take these in quite large groups, but uh, we would like to hear comparable or similar ideas, both in the field of political activism, protest, but also changing the way that you live, changing the nature of where you live, etc., etc. Uh, that would add to the substance of this already very, very rich discussion. So if you'd like to propose something along those lines, please put your hand in the air. And uh, we have a roving microphone. We do? Yes, we do. Fire away. It's a problem with doing it in the round. Where? Sorry. You can ask questions as well, yeah. Okay. But we would like some ideas. It would be a terrible indictment if there weren't any. Fire away, sir. Thank, thank you. Um, both really interesting talks. Um, I have... Two questions, both one to each, if that's acceptable. Yes. Uh, the first it's a festival, one, not a prison. <laughs> Fine, go on. The first one is about, do you worry about food production, though, in the UK? Because if every farm were to follow the example, then farms would probably produce less food. We would then have to import food. We'd probably import food with a potentially new trade deal from the States. Okay. And that problem. The second is, is there anyone in your activism group that is the kind of reserved voice that's saying actually that's too far because for example with the, the chancellor and um, we had an mp killed a few years ago and that was a really harrowing thing so mps are gonna be very scared when someone sneaks up behind them and and kind of tries to jump in and do a speech so is anyone saying actually no that's too far both good questions okay there's a woman there and then a woman there I will ensure all, both those questions are answered. This isn't the new Labour trick of taking questions in groups that, so as you can ignore them. I'm trying to make that clear. Woman there. Right, yeah, so this is not a new idea, just to say about a quarter of a mile over there, the community built a four and a half megawatt solar farm on land owned by Cornbury Estate. And we've only covered half the field in panels and the rest is being made biodiverse. So we've got a big ecological plan, we're growing fruit there, so things can be done. Great, and then the woman there. That's kind of what we were aiming at, fire away. Um, from my understanding, it's a really common misconception that when you move towards organic regenerative agriculture, the yield goes down. Um, actually, the yield goes up and is higher, if not comparable to industrial farming. Um, but I think the main concern seems to be from farmers who are conventional industrial farming is how can they um, afford the gap between industrial farming to organic because it takes several years for the soils to regenerate. So what can be done to support those farmers in the transition? Okay, thank you. Uh, there was a woman down the front here. Can we have some ideas if possible as well as questions? Otherwise, we're screwed. If you haven't got any ideas, then that's it. Uh, this one's an idea. Oh, good. But it's uh, not particularly difficult one to achieve. Okay. Um, it's about uh, human rights auditing within your supply chain, but in particular within the uh, fisheries supply chain. So things like the Marine Stewardship Council don't actually include it. This means that things like um, forced labour at sea 
in fish factories. Huge problem. If you've not, if you don't know about it, watch a film called Ghost Fleet. I'm also on the board of a human rights at Z charity, which is why I'm kind of a little bit obsessed with this. Um, but basically, the ongoing impact that that has on the environment is we're so obsessed with having sushi all the time and fish all the time. All we're doing constantly is overfishing and demand is driving um, ship owners um, and corporations into lowering costs, which includes forced labour in the third world. And these things do make it into the supply chain within the EU, within the UK. We even have, uh, we've even had forced labour within the UK um, fisheries sector and the Northern Irish and Irish fisheries sector because you employ overseas, um, well, overseas uh, seafarers on international contracts. Okay. Um, but basically, just include um, human rights auditing into it. It's not difficult. Um, there's something called the Geneva Declaration on um, Human Rights at Sea. Yeah. Uh, it's basically just mirroring human rights legislation okay. in high seas. Okay. Super simple. I don't, sitting under that is, is clearly the fact that ecological malpractice very often is woven into human rights malpractice. Right, woman over there. Sorry, I'm sending you in the wrong direction. Woman in the... Oh, she's got a mic. Sorry. Fire um, away. I love Greenpeace and I love Extinction Rebellion. They love you. But I was wondering if there's any way or, or if they are looking at ways of making it more mainstream because I know from my own experience that a lot of people find it too new age and too hippie-ish. And I don't have a problem with that. But the most important thing, I think, is to educate the mainstream people so that they vote or take an interest in citizens' assemblies. Because a lot of action, I think, doesn't get reported because people find it irritating, which is a sad thing. But they do. And you mentioned so, citizen, citizens' assemblies. Can you just explain why you mentioned citizens' assemblies? Well, that's what Extinction Rebellion are, are gunning for, so that you have a group of people who are educated by scientists who then uh, will make decisions in the long term rather than the short-term government um, MPs and prime ministers who half the time are clueless. And All the who time. Are, yeah, and who, are <laughs> and who are basically just working in the interests of the oil companies who have no interest in the environment because they won't make money if people stop using fossil fuels, which are what make pharmaceuticals, all the farming, uh, modern farming stuff, and yeah. combustibles. Okay, thank you. So yeah, just uh, ways we'll of making it more mainstream. Right, we'll probably take or whatever, I two know. more, starting with the gentleman here, and then that woman there, and then we'll come back to Rose. I'm writing them down too. Hi, um, yeah, I've got an idea for you all. Um, Good. All the gardeners, there must be some gardeners in the room, um, great, Garner's fantastic. Um, get to know your neighbours as well. Talk to your neighbours, and particularly if they've got kids and families, people you may or may not know in your street or area, talk to them, get involved, and grow extra stuff. I've only me and my wife. We grow tons more than we need to, and we give it away, but we also teach them how to grow themselves. Round of applause for this so man here. That's what it's all about, really. Life's, life's too short, so we've got to, you know, grow your own. People, you get four or five courgettes on a plant. I've grown 18 plants this year. I've got courgettes coming out of my ear holes, but <laughs> relatives have got them. Families got them. Where do you them. live, sir? Um, I live in Hertfordshire. Right, anyone in Hertfordshire need courgettes? You can speak to come this and, man at the end of the session. Come and see me. I'll even give you a recipe as well. I work in the food business as well, but I'm not doing any plugs like that. But... It gets social interaction. We're back talking to our neighbours. We're sharing food. Romanian couple, one side, I'm eating their stuff, they're sharing. Asian family, the other side, their kids are, are growing and developing. So it all works together, and hopefully we can educate. Everybody I know for Christmas is only getting homegrown food and a copy of Greta's book. Every single person will get that in a bag for life. That's their wrapping paper. Reuse it again. Brilliant. If you wanted a scale X trick, tough shit. Uh, woman there, and then we'll go back to Isabella and Rosie. So it's an idea. Um, community energy. We put so much money into the large uh, energy companies that are using fossil fuels. Move to community energy. Um, generate your own renewable energy at a community level, uh, and stop 
the mining of fossil fuels. And via what means are we talking about? Solar, cheaply? So, solar, um, heat generated from geothermal heat, air source heat. Um, are you doing that yourself? We are doing that. And where, and, where and how are you doing it? I'm working for a small cooperative in Brighton, um, but this happens a lot around the southeast. That's all I know about. Um, and little organizations ask for investment for the community to put in these resources to generate energy for an entire community, and we don't need to rely on the big suppliers. Brilliant. Okay, so let's go back to the panel. Rosie, can you answer the question, first of all, about is there anyone in your activist group who says, hold on a minute, folks, you may be going a bit far? That's a serious question in the sense that these things can backfire, right? Yeah, it's a totally serious question. I mean, I would like to flip it and say, who are the people out there that are saying, hey, oil companies, this has gone too far, <laughs> and hey, government, this has gone too far. So I think I kind of want to flip the question, but basically we are non, you know, we're non-violent. We do non-violent direct action. Everything we do is not violent. We don't, never aim to hurt anyone. When we went into this action with Mark Field, we literally went in there in red dresses saying climate emergency sashes. We went in there and every single one of us said 10 times, this is a peaceful protest. We are from Greenpeace. Also, Janet, the woman that he basically strangled, walked past him three times, handed people leaflets around him. It was not threatening. I understand that, you know, we live in a different age, but to be quite honest, like, these people are making decisions that are screwing up our planet and the future of everyone's lives. And so I can totally justify what I did. Yeah. Possible to argue with. I will step out of the chair and make that non-neutral point. <laughs> Uh, Isabella, can you br briefly answer those two questions? So, first of all, the question about um, food production, and then secondly, the question about how you get a kind of, uh, what's the word, kind of orthodox, non-organic farmer over the hump into organic farming. I don't know whether that's something you can answer, but... Have a go. I have a go. Um, I, it's, it's, it's the key question. So um, how are we going to feed ourselves um, and get biodiversity back into our landscape? And it all comes down to the soil. So we're not talking about rewilding the whole of Great Britain. I mean, we, we are um, talking about... The, uh, this is a, a, the, the project we're doing is a nature project, essentially. So it's all about biodiversity and soil restoration, carbon sequestration, flood mitigation, all the other things. It's not necessarily about food production, even though we are producing a little bit of food. But what it can do is it can work in tandem with agriculture. I mean, first of all, your question about how we're going to feed, feed the, the planet. Um, you know, we have to realize that we're wasting 40% of our food and we're already producing enough food for 11 billion people. Um, and we have to stop wasting it. Um, we have to stop eating meat, don't we? Um, no. We don't. We need to be very, very precise about the kind of meat we eat. We must stop eating um, industrialised meat, grain-fed meat. It's unconscionable, it's unsustainable, it's, it's bad for the animal's health, it's bad for our health. That system has to go. But animals are part of the cycle, the life cycle, the carbon cycle. If we take animals out of the landscape, we are not going to be able to restore our soils. And according to some scientists, we only have 100 harvests left globally before our topsoils have disappeared altogether. Wouldn't the dwindling of cattle farming, as I understand it, be hugely uh, beneficial to climate change in the sense that you'd have a lot less cows farting, the, a lot the, less? The methane argument is, I, to my mind, a bit of a tangent because we have been living with herbivores globally on this planet for millions of years, and it's never been a problem. The problem now is carbon. And carbon, it's, the cows are part of the carbon cycle, and they can actually encourage the way they graze, the way they browse, the way they restore the soil with their dung and their urine and their trampling, yeah. and the way they graze actually stimulates carbon storage in the roots underneath the okay, soil. Okay, and then a quick answer to the question about how to get someone who's farming using sort of conventional, orthodox, non-organic methods over the hump. Yes, I think it's going to be two-way two -way thing we're going to have to look at it. Um, and I think it is happening in the sort of policy making thinking at the moment. First of all, we are going to have to start um, uh, uh, rewarding land managers, not simply for producing food at whatever cost and irrespective of what land it's on, but also on the other public goods that they are supplying. So if they are restoring the soils, if they are um, cleaning their water supply, if they're mitigating against floods, you'll get paid for that. Isn't that so the new system of post-Brexit subsidy that the blessed Michael Gove in one of his yeah, few Yeah, it is, and I think it's a, it's an incredibly good idea. It's called an Environmental Land Management Scheme, yeah. Big up Michael Gove, please tweet um, that. But I think 
the other thing which is going to be really, really interesting is, is that that's the carrot and the stick is going to be the polluter pays. So if you, as a farmer, are polluting your water sources with, with nitrates, if you are degrading your soils, why should the taxpayer far, further down the, the, the river system have to pay for taking the nitrates out of that water? Okay. So the polluter pays is going to be a game changer. Listen, can, I I wanna, can we take some, I take some... We know what they are, and I would say at the moment the gentleman who grows his own food is in the lead. That's just a personal opinion. You're nodding. You think you're in the lead too, eh? Fair play. Your self-belief is entirely justified. Can we have some more ideas, please? Can I, can I just answer Yes, that very quickly. Yeah. Uh, just very quickly about the mainstream bit. Oh, yeah, go on. Yeah, basically, like, there's so many ways to get involved in environmental activism. There's so many organisations out there. There's um, Reclaim the Power, who did a big camp last week. There's Friends of the Earth. There's WWF. Yes, there's Greenpeace. There's XR. There's so many community-based things. I think the thing is just find what's right for you. It's like a buffet. You might want to try little bits and see what works. But I think you're not going to find something that fits all. But what there is, is there's so much on offer and people just need to have a little look and see what fits for them. Greenpeace, we have our own style. We, you know, we do green speakers events in schools. We have local groups, which may be a bit more PG than the actions. You can also join the climb and boat team, but you can also be a political lobbyist and write to your MP for Greenpeace. So I think it's like, again, those tools in the toolbox and finding out what works for you. Okay. Yeah. Right, can we have some more? I think we've got about 15, 20 minutes. 15 minutes left. Okay, uh, can we have some more ideas at the back here? Oh, go with that man there and then the fella at the back and then we need some women, please. Fire away. Right, it's not, it's, it's not a new idea um, and I'd like to take a poll. Who, who hasn't flown in the last year here? About five people. So we've got to get some... But it's, it's not... Flight shaming is a new thing which Greta's talked about. Um, okay. And one of the things which I'd like to link it with is, uh, as I understand it, Extinction Rebellion did not call off a, um, a, a, a protest to shut Heathrow a few weeks ago because they thought it would be too, too strong, too full on. So we've got, you know, if you reduce, the, the one thing you can do, uh, other than a major refit of your home for energy efficiency to reduce your carbon footprint is not to fly. So you've got to think some way of actually mitigating that. If you need a holiday, take yeah. a train. But you've got to get some way of getting those extra days of holiday. And as I understand it now, there is a proposal that um, uh, companies <laughs> should give days for travel. Okay. Uh, in in for people that take a holiday, so they can get there by train and not eat into their two-week or four-week annual allowance. Okay. Brilliant point. We should tackle that also holistically and say, I, I say this as a, a frequent weekly user of, user of long-distance train services. If that's going to work, Great Western Railway and Virgin Trains and all those wankers are going to have to change their game. Free Let public transport. That. Free public, public transport, transport may be part of the answer. Excuse my French, I hate Great Western Railways. Man at the back. Do you know how much it is? Seriously, if you want to travel from where I live to London, it's only an hour and a quarter on a fast train. If you want to go at 7 o'clock in the morning, 200 quid return. Absurd. Gentleman there in the hat. Hi there, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a really big fan of uh, the carbon sink traps and what we can actually do to kind of re, you know, essentially the swampland, the, the kind of the peat bogs, restoring all of that for, for big boosts in, in carbon. Yeah. Um, and I also wonder whether we can do more with uh, hydroponic farming and whether that's actually a, a potential way forwards if we can be growing up as well as... That's where you have fish and you use their poo to fertilise the vegetables you're growing. I'm and not too sure about the details within it, but I, I do know that but you can grow around the clock, basically. So okay. it's 24-hour growing, essentially. You're not relying on just the sun to do it, uh, which means that you can do it all indoors. I know they do it in London on, in uh, disused underground stations, for example. Um, <laughs> and that would essentially allow us to you know, use more of the land to restore trees, among other things, etc. Okay. Rosie, who did you spot? Because I didn't see it. So oh, yeah, woman down here at the front, please. She's here. Brilliant. So I know you were... That's not... Working? Oh, yeah. sorry, it's me. Um, I know you were making a joke about uh, street food not changing the world. And I agree with you, it's given a bit, been given a bit too big a platform um, over the past years. But I do believe that food is something that brings us together and it can cross classes um, and it can... I'm sure all educated on eating meat can really help the environment. So one thing that my company does is that every meal that you buy from us, we plant a tree and feed a child, because climate change is a global issue and we, we've contributed to 
these countries not being able to grow food and large starvation issues. So I really would like to appeal to any food business to take it on board to do the same. And if you think about how many people there are in the UK, how many meals we eat a day, you can create massive change around food just by putting simple policies like this in place. You do not work for McDonald's, presumably? No. <laughs> no okay. Are you allowed to tell us which company you work for? Yeah, I work for Happy Mackey's. We've got vegan sushi sold just opposite the atrium. Okay. So. And I take it your sushi comes with a clean bill of human rights health. That's very important? Yeah, definitely. Yes, okay. There you go. You can eat that with a clear conscience. Woman down the front here, please. And then we'll go to that gentleman there. Yeah, just a very simple idea. Um, we, my husband and I plant trees in our garden. And if anyone has a garden, if everyone planted a tree or two in their garden, maybe if one dies and you replant, then I think that will help. And willow trees are supposed to be very good at carbon capture. So if everyone in this country planted a tree, maybe we would see a lot more. Brilliant. Simple ideas are very often the best. Gentlemen there, and then those two women at the back. So, yes, you, sir, and your splendid Pink Floyd T-shirt. Be careful. This is a heavy leave voting area. Have you not noticed? Yeah, well, I've come down from Manchester. It's very noticeable. There are no signs directing you to wilderness, so I suspect most people here are from further south. I would say the thing <coughs> that made people in the Manchester area more aware of climate change was the Saddleworth Moor fires. Moors don't catch fire in September. Also, the Whaley Bridge Dam at the moment, which is because of the um, massive rainfall and the old dam probably about to collapse. But I think the other thing we have to concern ourselves with, which is all very well planting trees, but you look at a lot of climate models, we're too late. The trees should have been planted 20 years ago. Okay, so what are we going to do? This is it. I think you're going to have to change government policies really quickly. And I have a feeling that direct action, indirect action, suffragettes, their 20-year timescales, how those sort of things work. You've got to get people to move quickly. Otherwise, the only way we're going to change things is by massive geoengineering projects. Okay, in a sentence, how do, you, how do you do it then? How do we avoid the 20-year timescale? You, you've got the timescales. Timescales are what you have. You've got to stop CO2. Emissions. I know, I know, I know, we know, but what are you going to do? It's an open forum. <laughs> I think you've got to work out the idea. What I'm trying to say is that planting trees yeah. um, is probably too slow. You know, we're at the very, very edge of the ultimate disaster. Really, really... Okay, we'll come back in, in people, a moment. People, other people aren't aware of that. Okay. And seem to think that long-term solutions, yeah. gradual change okay. will be sufficient. Okay. But to, to leaven what you just said with a, a note of some optimism, I think personally, and you may agree, Rosie and Isabella, the world moves much faster politically than it has done in the past. If I'd have told you 10 years ago we were about to take this absolute act of folly and leave the European Union with hugely damaging economic consequences, you'd have thought I was mad. Now, if the right can do that, why can't the progressive climate-conscious left do something equally ambitious? I think that's a, a question worth thinking about. But those two women at the back, please. It was a very good point, sir. Thank you. No, let's get those two women at the back there, please, and then we'll take uh, those two. This guy's been very patient. He's what? He's been very okay, and then we'll take three, and we'll have to... Right, please keep these quick now. Fire away. I just wanted to touch quickly on the hydroponics, aquaponics thing. Um, it's definitely got a place to produce some food. Aquaponics is where you use fish. Hydroponics is where you feed in the nutrients. I see, I was right in the right area. Roughly. Yeah, and uh, it's also an incredibly powerful teaching tool to use in classrooms. Okay. Kids love it. It's a really, really cool thing. Okay. Um, I also wanted to uh, let you know about a really cool new charity that's recently launched called The Crowd. Um, for anyone who um, wants to contribute financially, it's um, a charity where you, um, you give one monthly donation and it splits it between nine different charities that will take climate action from different areas, from tree planting, uh, energy, and, uh, and industry transition. It's a really okay. cool charity, The Crowd. Okay. Are you Check involved? It, uh, it was my brother that set it up. Okay, fair play. <laughs> uh, and the woman next to you, and then the patient person. Who was the patient person? You there in the red shirt. Anyway, go on, fire away. Yeah, I just have a quick thing to add um, in response to the, the lady who spoke earlier about trying to kind of extend the movement to the mainstream. Um, I recently joined The Crowd, um, and I'm, you know, I'm a busy GP and I feel like I'd like to get more involved. But for me, that was a good solution because it's something you can do quite quickly okay. um, and it makes it a bit easier. Okay, you might as well say your website address and you've been shamelessly um, plugging it for the last minute. <laughs> it's thecrowd.charity. Are you on Twitter? Right. Yes. Right. All, all social media, share away. What's the Twitter <laughs> handle? The Crowd. 
at the, the crowd at the crowd charity. Okay, there we go. Right, and then the patient man in the red shirt, and then the woman there, and then we'll have to stop. Go on. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, I've missed really, unfortunately, part of the discussion. So if someone said it, I really apologize. But I, what I would advise is that people stand as counselors and have a look at what their councils are doing to undermine their green belt. I've been voted into Spalthorn Borough Council in May. And my hair, and there isn't much of it, is standing on end. Selling I off the green belt. Here, selling off the green belt to Shepparton Studios, for example. But revising the local plan and then having a reclassification of green belt into badly performing or you know weakly performing for weakly performing green belt and you immediately get planning companies then applying saying oh these are exceptional circumstances and as we all agreed these are weakly performing green belt so the status to maintain the status quo is a battle and green belt will be sold off if you don't look at the small print of what your council is doing and preferably stand as a candidate, sit on the planning committee, you won't see what's happening because it's not in the media. And it's a great scandal. What okay. every one of you are doing so much on an individual level, they are selling the land off from below your feet. They really are. And worse. Thank yeah. you, sir. Right, and then the woman there, and then we're going to go back to Isabella and Rosie. Hi. I'm going to um, end with death. Death? <laughs> I work, yeah. I work in There's a cemetery There's no going anywhere Bristol, after death, is there? Come and on, I'd like away. us to start thinking about what we do with our bodies when wow. we die and also how we remember the dead. We are constantly tidying up people, putting flowers down in plastic, and they just don't think about it in that moment. And it's like, think about what you're putting down there as your grave and like or whatever else but maybe just they should about those trees. things absolutely yeah there's lots of other different ways but i think we need to have the discussions now because we're seeing still seeing very old behavior typically do you work in, in the death trade are you an undertaker seriously are you an undertaker i'm or? i work at Arnosvale cemetery in bristol yes right okay yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i begin to wonder whether well the room's already run out isn't it really in most municipal centers. there's lots of different ways but we i mean there are discussions being had but the we just need to keep having them. Okay, we've got five minutes left. Now, the, 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 I don't know whether this is going to happen, but it was mooted as we were planning this session that uh, you two would pick maybe one, which I know is uh, very sort of right-wing and competitive and we're not meant to do such things. But nonetheless, uh, and that, that one would get a free pass to a later event this afternoon, which is called Wilderness Changed the World, which is all about policy ideas. So one idea from this session would go through. But talk generally about what you've heard and what sticks out, and then I will force you to pick a winner consensually. Uh, Isabella first, then Rosie. Okay, um, what I, I loved was uh, the woman over here who talked about regenerative farming. We have to move from industrial chemical-based farming into regenerative farming. And as she absolutely says, it can be as productive, if not more productive, no inputs and therefore way more profits. A guy who's written fantastically about this is somebody called Gabe Brown, Dirt to Soil. Absolutely brilliant, but that is going to be the way forward for farming. Um, I love the idea of um, of, of uh, including the um, the sort of human rights into the food into the chain of of business. Um, I think equally we have to make this polluter pays principle too, so that that is recognised in the cost of the food that we are are eating. Um, Growing your own food and giving it all away. And growing or, your own food, some fantastic. And I, I, I think the, the, the power of the gardener in Britain is enormous. We have more gardens than nature reserves, I mean per acre of nature reserves. So if every garden owner turned their garden into an organic, just put stop, stop putting chemicals on it, that would be an enormous plus. But I love what you're doing because you're talking to your neighbours. And if you can connect with your neighbours, and I've got a friend in Bristol who has talked to his neighbours and they've all put hedgehog tunnels in through their hedges and their fences... That is now a wildlife corridor, all those back gardens down the street. So it's about connectivity, and I think you're spot on there. Brilliant. Rosie, we've got about two minutes left. Fire away. Yeah, I think, uh, I think for me, like, it's basically thinking about the different levels. So when we're thinking about things we can actually do, you've got one, you've got the companies who are responsible for a lot of these problems. So that's making, you know, doing what you can to try and force companies to change their ways. That's BP, it's car companies that push diesel and petrol cars on a road that are really harming the planet. It's uh, Shell, it's the, fi I mean, for finance, right, banks in the UK finance coal 
all over the world. Like, they don't have to be doing that. They can be financing renewables. Then the next section, you have government. So Greenpeace, we do have 134 policies the government could do tomorrow that will help, help save the planet. So if you want some bedtime reading uh, on Monday, Sunday night, then do check that and out. And which, which are the ones you heard? Can you pick two or three? Uh, I think... Great. I do I've never heard anyone talk about the death industry. In this yeah, I think... Before. Yeah, all these... I think tree planting... Uh, I think... Okay, totally agree on flying. I personally support a frequent flyer tax. Basically, everyone gets a tax-free return flight a year for their one holiday for their family, and then the rest of it is very highly taxed. For example, there's people who are flying to Paris every day from London that are like businessmen and politicians, and they should be taxed a lot. And that money then can go in to free public transport, which I think would really, really change the game because it would mean that people would fly less, for example. Okay, so we're going to end, we're going to wrap this up in a minute. So here's what I'd like you both to do: Can you pick one one of the ideas you've heard, right? And then if it's the same one, we have a winner. And if it's not, I'll have to do something. I, I would know. say I'm going to go with the human rights and fish because we have to have an intersectional approach to these results. We can't be pushing ideas that are going to be harming other fights and other struggles. So we can't be doing stuff on X, but then ruining it for people over here. Okay. So I'm going to okay. go Actually, that I know what I'm going to do. Approach. If you come up with a different one, Isabella, we'll put this to the vote and then we'll know. So Isabella, one of the ideas you've heard. I, w I would have to go with regenerative farming with this whole idea because that is the future and it's going to be changed. Okay. I'm going to pick one, which is... We're running out of time. Planting trees, um, regenerating the soil is the biggest hope we have for Absolutely. reducing the effects okay. of climate Absolutely. change. Absolutely, bang on. We can sequester <laughs> so much carbon okay. if, only we yeah. if only we convert to regenerative farming. Right, I'm gonna, as the chair, I'm going to throw in a third one, which is grow your own food and share it, and we're going to put this to the vote. So the three you have to choose from are regenerative farming, a human rights audit on the fishing industry, that's correct, yep. or grow your own food and share a lot of it. So... Regenerative farming, how many would like to pick that idea? Yeah. That's a lot. Okay, a human rights audit on the fishing industry. Yeah. That's not so many. Grow your own food and share it. Regenerative farming wins. You are through to Wilderness Saves the World. Congratulations. Who, who uh, remind me, who proposed regenerative farming? The fella back there. Who said re regenerative farming? That was you, right? So if you're around, if you go to the sound desk, they will tell you when this later event is and you get a free pass to present that idea at the Wilderness Saves the World forum if you fancy doing that round of applause please for that idea so at 3:45 today i'm chairing another climate event with clive lewis um, a very senior green party mep whose name i've forgotten which is all about the green new deal aileen ellie chowns Right, from the Green Party, sorry, I've, I've been doing two of these events, I'm barely awake. Uh, that's at 3.45 today, there'll be much more happening in this tent. Thank you all for coming, that was a brilliant session, but please join me in thanking Rosie Rogers and Isabella Tree. And thank you, John. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations. <laughs>